Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. and radio show of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Alex Mozinski, and I'm joined today by our new co-host, Adrian Bory. Adrian, how are you today? I'm doing pretty great. That's good. Are you excited to be here? First episode on GradCast. How are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty great. I'm excited to be here and to talk about some neuroscience. All right. Neuroscience is very cool. I can attest to that myself, I think, if anyone listening knows. I'm currently a third-year PhD student in neuroscience, so woohoo. That should have sounded way more enthusiastic. Woohoo! Anyway, today we're joined by James Crickleway. You guys should uh, check out our website to see the spelling, and you'll agree that it's up there with my name for complicatedness. James is a fourth-year PhD student in the lab of Dr. Derek Mitchell. How do you like working with Dr. Mitchell? Uh, it's been great so far. No complaints if anybody feels like joining. That's good advertising. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about the research that you do with Dr. Mitchell. What the broad topic that you guys focus on. So what uh, Dr. Mitchell and I look at is how emotions affect our uh, perception of the world around us. So a lot of how we interact with the environment is colored or shaded by the emotional interaction we have with it, how it makes us feel, and as it turns out, how these emotions are represented within us also affects how we see and how we hear and in our other senses as well. Does that then feed back onto how we're feeling itself? So How we feel affects how we perceive the world, which does that then come back around and affect how we feel even more? It can, definitely. There's an interconnection between thoughts, feelings, and behaviors where everything is able to influence everything else. As you're well aware, also being within neuroscience, it's never anything done in isolation. All processing is kind of done with all different systems together. Okay, cool. So what can you tell us really basic ideas for anyone listening who does not have a neuroscience background? How is what, what is perception and how do we perceive things? Perception is just our internal representation of the world. It's our sight, it's our hearing, our taste, our touch, and this is our own mental awareness of these senses. How we bring it in is, as I just went over, through sight, through sounds, the ability to feel things. It uses our different sensory organs, our ears, our eyes, and it's just what we see in the world around us. Okay, so what we see in the world around us, we're perceiving everything all the time, and we're perceiving different specific things about, let's say, the chair in the room. I can tell, I guess, where all the chairs are, and I can tell that they are chairs, in fact. Is that all perceived in one area? How, how are, would those two things be perceived differently? Right in the where. Oh, you go right into my research topic. So within a lot of our sensory perception, there's different characteristics of a object that we need to be able to recognize. As you pointed out, there's things like location, there's things like uh, identity, there's also things like motion or brightness, and all of these have particular regions within the uh, sensory areas of the brain that process them. So within the visual stream, which is probably the most well-defined sensory stream, partially because it's uh, the primary sense for humans, so it's what's kind of most important for us to understand as well, it takes up a lot of real estate within the brain there are two very distinct pathways. One that's looking at location, one that's looking at the identity of the object. Okay, and is it the visual pathway only, or are there other pathways that have a what and a where? So within other senses, it has been shown that there's a similar division. Now, when I say what and where, that's a very general term. It's actually probably more accurate to say something like an action-related stream and a perception-related stream, but I'm just going to use what and where. (laughs) Please, Mel, 
good ale, don't get angry at me. Within uh, the auditory stream, we also see a similar type of division. So actually recently, another researcher here at Western, Dr. Steve Womber, has shown that you can divide the auditory stream into identity and location-related uh, processing regions, similar to the streams within the visual system. That's sort of so these are, these are streams, we're calling them, in the brain, but there are actually different anatomical pathways in the brain that would be responsible for pr helping to process this information. Is that correct? Exactly. So when I refer to streams, it's just, as you said, different anatomical regions which have connections, and that these all kind of process the same type of information. So that would mean then that one of these areas could be damaged and another one could be left unaffected. Do you ever see that in your research? Within my research, no. Within visual and auditory research as a whole, you definitely do. And that's actually one of the ways that they were able to first identify these streams. So they'd find people who could easily recognize objects, but would not be able to tell you where they were. And then there were other groups of people who could easily tell you where an object was, how it was moving, or could um, interact with an object, but when they, they would have no idea what was in front of them. For example, if you put a ball on this table, and I rolled it across the table to you, you would be able to reach out and grab the ball. But if I asked you what just happened, you would not know. You wouldn't know the ball was coming, you wouldn't know the ball existed, but yet you could interact with it without any issue. Interesting. So how did people acquire these injuries, or were they uh, congenital, or was it like a stroke or a brain injury? So there are multiple ways that you can acquire uh, brain lesions. Most within humans, are accidental. Clearly, there's no intentional lesioning, intentional damaging of the brain for research purposes. That does not pass ethics, usually, ever. So yes, it's generally accidental. It's either stroke or it could be physical damage. And have they studied these pathways in mice? So you were talking about humans having unintentional, but I wonder if maybe they've done mouse studies or other animal studies where they've lesioned the brain, a very specific region. Not within mice per se. Mice are a little bit of a deviation from the human brain. So although useful models in other aspects of neuroscience and biology, not as useful when trying to look at the senses. Mm -hmm. However, within monkeys, they've definitely looked at the visual cortex and the different pathways and uh, regions that process different information. And with the auditory processing streams, they use cats a lot, actually, oh. because cats have very large regions devoted to processing sounds. Interesting. Goes well with their big ears, I guess. <laughs> anyway, that was a bad joke. Sorry, everybody. So we have two distinct anatomical pathways. One can be damaged while the other is unaffected, and that can affect our behavior. And as we mentioned at the beginning now, emotions can affect our perceptions. Can emotions affect one more than another, and would this happen differently in different people? Emotions can definitely affect some pathways more than others, and that's actually a lot of uh, the research that Dr. Mitchell and I have recently been looking at, is trying to identify which of these types of characteristics emotion is impacting. So recently we've kind of found that uh, the emotion impacts the... Uh, identity-related areas more than the location. So if I got really, really angry right now because you punched me in the face and called me a really bad name or something, I might know that there's a chair there, but I might not be able to identify it as a chair? Well, actually, it's almost the inverse. You would still have your know that the chair's there, but you would know that it's a chair even more. I would know that it's even more of a chair. Yeah, so <laughs> what we see is that, um, to a certain extent, emotion seems to augment so it seems to help out activity in these identity-related streams instead of harm it. So it helps to identify things. Yes. 
like weapons. I would not <laughs> go that far. It helps to, for something like a visual search task, which you think is location-based, but as soon as you're not directly interacting with it, you need to be able to identify it as well and then interact with it. So if uh, you were trying to search for something, then press a button to say where that is. The ability to that would be helped by an emotional thing happening around you. Okay. I'm just trying to get at it, like, in my mind from an evolutionary standpoint. Like, if I was furious and, like, all riled up, a rock is just a rock to me. But suddenly, maybe it becomes a rock that could be used as a, as a tool <laughs> for you to have the weapon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what Actually, I mean. Like, is that potentially why Potentially, it's but also because you want to identify what might harm you. Okay. So not what you can harm other people with. Alex, we're going to keep more of a distance now. But instead, you want to really quickly be able to pick up and identify what might be able to harm you in your environment. So if you hear a cry that there's some infant somewhere, somebody's in trouble, you want to be able to quickly identify, quickly be able to tell around you what is the threat. What do you need to be aware of? Okay. I have a question. So do all intense emotions cause this focus or are there some emotions that have an opposing way of affecting our perception? So f when I think of sadness, for example, think of it as a really heavy thing. When you think of someone who's depressed, they actually lose interest in some of the things that held their attention before. It almost seems like for them, a chair becomes less of a chair. So is intense sadness something that also changes our ability to see an object or, or identify an object, or is it, does it lessen that? So in terms of what my research is looking at is more of the, uh, the state characteristics, so not the depressed state where it's a constant emotional change, but kind of the normal up and down fluctuations that you would encounter. And it seems that all emotions in that time seem to have a very similar effect. So they all seem to augment activity. That said, uh, it is known that these uh, types of prolonged emotional states, so depression, do impact the ability to regulate emotions and could influence things, as you said, like your outlook on the world. Yeah, your perception of it. Interesting. So this is kind of a really getting at an abstract thought for me anyway, but this is it helps to identify an object. What about something a little bit more obscure? Like, let's say you're taking a multiple choice test. Could it help you to identify the correct response to a question in certain situations? Or is that actually probably detrimental to so, your ability to perform on a test? So a little bit of stress is thought to help with test performance. There's thought to be kind of an optimal level of stress, which kind of heightens the faculties, heightens attention. That said, you don't want to go for it because you can also go too far. And once you have too much, then you start to impair these systems instead, and that is not what anybody ever wants to be completely blank while writing their tests. Um, at the same time, you don't want to be completely unstressed and not caring while writing your test because from personal experience, that doesn't work. Okay, very true. Yeah, because I actually have heard that like a little bit of stress helps you to remember things better. So I guess by enhancing our perceptions, it would help to also solidify memories better. Potentially. Cool. How do you conduct this research? So we're talking about these different pathways and people and emotions, but what do you do to answer these kinds of questions? So most of our, the research conducted within this area is conducted using the uh, MRI scanner, so the functional, functional magnetic resonance imaging. This is a magnetic field-based scanner which allows us to take pictures of people, so volunteers we have come into the lab, it allows us to take pictures of their brain 
to see what regions, what areas of the brain they're using and they're activating during different tasks. Interesting. And what are the demographics of the participants that you are enrolling in and looking at? Is it all of the university students, or is it a wide range of ages? And For this research, it was mostly a university-based sample, so we did recruitment from around the uh, university campus. It was all volunteers, so people who volunteered their time to come in and participate for us. So you get these people, they go into this giant magnet that can take pictures of their brains, and what do you do to enhance their emotional situation then like what do you, you hit them on the foot or like <laughs> <laughs> most of the emotional manipulation that we do within the scanner is done through pictures or sound clips so we'll show them various pictures that could range from a basket full of kittens to being attacked by a bear people tend to prefer the kittens most people there's always the oddball or we can have different auditory cues so a baby crying children laughing or sometimes just like a neutral lawnmower, and we'll have them listen to different things while they try to perform different tasks involving them. So either localizing them, identifying the emotion from them, seeing how they move, and then we look at what brain regions are active, what brain regions are affected by the emotion of the pictures versus the task, the unemotional portion of the task. So if it's something like a sound clip, how could they identify its location? So just like a speaker somewhere, or what, what would they do there? So that was actually a very interesting part of one of the studies we did, is, as you said, if we just give them headphones and then play them sounds, there's not really all that much you can do. The sound always seems to come from within your head. To get around this, and because we couldn't bring a speaker array into the scanner, it's a tiny little hole about two feet wide that you slide into. You can't bring speakers, plus it's a giant magnet, so if you bring anything metal it becomes fatal very quickly. So okay. we, try, we tend to avoid that, but we try to. So what we did is we actually collaborated with another researcher from the uh, National Center of Audiology here at Western named Dr. Ewan McPherson, and his research looks to create virtual auditory environments. So these are worlds that we would put our participant in that would be catered to their own head shape, to their own ears, so that when we were presenting the sounds through, through the headphones, they would still be perceived to be in real physical locations around the participant. A virtual auditory environment. Yes. How, virtual auditory environment. How does that work? I, that's blowing my mind right now. So... How we pick up location from sounds, how we naturally do it, is by using differences in volume and differences in timing that our two ears receive. So what we would do is record from our participants, we would put little microphones at the base of their ears, and then we would record the sounds that that portion of the head receives, that ear receives, from a bunch of different speakers in the real world around them before we brought them into the scanner. Now after we did this, we were able to see the volume level differences the timing level differences that the two microphones were picking up on, and then recreate these same effects using a series of filters on our sounds to give these virtual environments, this virtual world, when we brought them back into the uh, scanner later on. That sounds like something that would be awesome to combine with like an Oculus Rift for creating <laughs> a virtual reality. That's so cool. I spent uh, a number of times at my own desk while working late where I would create scenes with the beach and some children playing and some birds in the background. So on my breaks, I could just open the blinds, let the sun in, and pretend I was on the beach in my full virtual world. So speaking of emotional stimuli, how did you feel on those days? Relaxed. That's very good. We Which should... you don't often feel in grad school. 
We should get these for everybody all the time. Wow. So do these account for the shape of your ear too? Because I, I remember hearing in like undergrad auditory neuroscience courses that actually the shape of the pinna of your ear are, is different for everybody and that actually affects sound localization a lot. Yeah, so what we did is we placed the microphones actually just within the ear. So you're absolutely correct in saying that the shape of the ear does influence it. And that's why we wanted to measure these virtual environments individually for every person. That way, what the microphone recorded was exactly what entered that person's ear. So it really is personalized to them. Absolutely. Wow. What would you say is the most important finding of your research so far? Well, that's always a tougher question than a quick one to end off. But what I would say is the fact that we do see such a dissociable effect of emotion within these streams is a very important important finding. It was thought for a long time that emotion impacted kind of all aspects of sensory processing. Now that we, we really narrowed it down to this one particular region, it kind of helps to put a lot of the other emotion-related work in perspective. All right. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. So thank you so much for coming on to GradCast. We hope you'll consider coming on in the future to discuss more research or other graduate student-related experience that you have. And everybody, I'm Alex Mazinski, joined by Adrian Bori. Thanks a lot for listening. See you next time. That's all for this week. If you want to send us some feedback, or if you want to come on the show yourself, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Be sure to hook us up on social media. On Twitter, we're at Gradcast Radio, and look up Gradcast Radio also on Facebook. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, the podcast is located at gradcast.podbean.com, and it's on iTunes. And while you're there, why don't you leave us a review? It really helps us out. We'll see you guys next week. just a rock to me, but suddenly maybe it becomes a rock.